Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. I'm Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Tell me, Julie, what does your cat do all day when you're not at at home? Well, I think I've told you before that he is working a la Inception to implant (laughs) thoughts into my mind. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, he's just working on mathematical models, basically. Okay. Yeah. That's your, that's your theory, right? Uh, no, that's, that's, that's what oh, you, my webcam is telling oh, me. Oh, that's what your webcam is telling me. Yeah, you. we've see, got a little blackboard oh, in the okay. office. And- see, I knew I should, see, we don't have a webcam set up, so it's all a mystery to me what the cat may or may not be doing in the house or outside the house while I'm away. Oh. She could be sleeping on the pillows all day where she's not allowed. She could be, uh, you know, turning on the Xbox. I, I have no idea. Huh. This is sort of like that proverb. Yeah. If a tree falls in the forest and no one is around to hear it, does it make a sound? Yeah, it's an, it's an, this is an old uh, philosophical question. Uh, idea. The idea is not necessarily to answer the question. Um, you know, of course, some people listening to this probably have that kind of mind where they're like, "This is something we can test. We can do this." Right. But uh, but it's more about training the mind and and uh, and you know throwing a good paradox at it to beef it up. You know. Okay, so it's like a thought sandwich that we can chew on. Yeah, a big chewy thought sandwich. It's a double decker yeah. of a sandwich. Yeah, you could soften it up if you put it in the microwave a little bit, but straight up it's gonna be <laughs> it's gonna be pretty tough. Should we talk about I mean just like the bones of it? Like the the fact that the sound is sound is vibration that's carried through a medium right. at a frequency range capable of being heard by the human ear. So mm-hmm. there's there's that. That right. there's the sound that's out there. So regardless of whether or not you're here to listen to it or I'm here to listen to it, sound is going to exist, right? Yes. But and if the sound tree, isn't received, though, that's, that's kind of gets into the question. Like, if the sound is not received by a, by a listener or by an observer, right? Then did it take place? Hmm. Was it really sound? See, and I think that there are multiple, multiple answers to this, right? Right. Because you could say, well, that you know, other organisms are listening. First of all, mm-hmm. but I guess this is just concerning us, Homo sapiens. Yeah, and it really comes down to what it says about our perception. And how it affects our understanding of the universe. Okay. Okay. So, um, I'm thinking right now, like patterns that we tend to pick up on. Right. Right. So, um, sometimes I'll notice something that's happening in the world and I'll start think, Oh my goodness, Armageddon is about, is, it's just around the corner. Yeah. There's always something like, you know, especially if teenagers do something. Like suddenly everybody's paying attention to what these teenagers are doing and it's, Oh my goodness, the end of the world is near. Right. Yeah. Right. Like they're they're all listening to this horrible music, or they're wearing these jean shorts that are that are going to bring about the end times. And 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 people have been saying this for you know for ages. I didn't know that jean shorts was the cue for the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Well, no, it's the Antichrist. Uh, the Antichrist will will come in the form oh. of uh, yeah. Of jean shorts. Yeah, and jean shorts. <laughs> I've been rereading the name of the rose recently, so I have a lot of this like apocalyptic uh, stuff in my mind. So I can imagine like an old monk talking about, like explaining very detailed why teenagers in jean shorts are the sign that the Antichrist is walking uh, among us. So, but anyway, but but at any rate, we've been reading too much into data for a long time, and we continue to do it, um, even though it it might uh, relate more to say uh, geothermal events than uh, it does to the you know the 
uh, uh, you know, the arrival of the Antichrist on Earth. Okay, so if I'm looking at the weather, for instance, and I notice that there have been a ton of floods or hurricanes or tornadoes, and I start to think to myself, you know, oh my goodness, like what, what's going on? There seems to be more activity and, and, and weather than ever before. Right. Could and, it be it, true? And you can, you can totally freak out like that on like an individual level. Right. But you also see it in like broadly in scientific studies where it's called a reporting effect. Now, a great example of this, uh, is, um, is something that I came across when I was writing an article, uh, titled, Are, Are Volcanic Eruptions Increasing for Discovery News? And it, it's, I have done a number of these that all tackle seemingly simplistic questions. And, uh, and I was really delighted with how, uh, how interesting this one was. The, the short answer is, is no. And, and I didn't just look this up. I talked to some experts. I talked to, uh, uh, Lee Siebert, the director of the Smithsonian Global Vol- uh, Volcanism Program, or the GVP, as the kids call it, <laughs> in their jean shorts. And, uh, and, and he broke it down for me. Great guy. Uh, he said that, um, basically we've been, he, they've been looking, the G- GVP has been looking at volcanic eruptions for 40 years. And if you uh, you really start digging, you have about 200 years worth of data to look at. So if you plot those last 200 years, there's a clear increase in the number of eruptions over time. You look at the data and you're like, oh, well, there, you know, and this is totally, the numbers are totally off here. You're like, oh, there's five this year, and then the next year there's 10, and then there's 15. Mm-hmm. Volcanic activity is clearly going up. But that's, but it's not the case. This is, this is the reporting effect in action because. Tell us just straight, what does that mean? Like, why, why would we see that pattern and why wouldn't it be true? Well, you take this apparent increase in volcanic eruptions and you can compare it to other data and things start making a whole lot more sense. For instance, the apparent increase in volcanic eruptions parallels the rise in global population. It parallels human encroachment into areas of volcanic activity. There's suddenly more people around to observe volcanoes erupting. There are more people uh, living in the vicinity of volcanoes to report on it. You see the number increase with uh, the evolution of our uh, telecommunication systems. Suddenly, not only can more people, more people are in a position to observe volcanic um, activity, but they're in a better position to report it. So the, yeah, just tweeting right. what's going on. Tweeting about it, uh, you know, you know, emailing, call, I mean, just as simple as like being able to call somebody or instead of just writing a letter or just marking it in your journal. So that means that all of a sudden we have an avalanche of data. Right. And then another uh, interesting aspect um, that they uh, encountered is that if you you look at the apparent volcanic activity, just based on reports, you see two really curious uh, dips in volcanic activity in the 20th century, once during the First World War, and then again during the Second World War. Now, you could make the argument... (laughs) That, uh, that the, that these world wars caused volcanic activity around the world to decrease. But of course you would be, and that would be insane. Right, right. I'm raising my eyebrows right. right now at you. That's kind of like, um, it, 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 I mean, it comes down to the fact that we were pretty distracted during those times. We had world wars going on and we just didn't have time to really focus on what the volcanoes were doing for the most part. Again, it's kind of like the cat. If you've ever been, been really busy and you don't notice the cat doing anything, it doesn't mean the cat's not doing anything. In fact, it, it, it may re- result in the cat doing all sorts of horrible things to get your attention, <laughs> depending on the cat. Uh, it's, it's just where your attention is at. Likewise, they found that uh, following uh, the uh, really uh, dramatic eruptions of Krakatoa in 1883 and Mount Pele in 1902, 
you saw an apparent increase in volcanic activity following those events. Now, it would be a lot easier in this case to say, oh, well, there was just a huge volcanic act, uh, uh, event, so there, you know, these other volcanoes were acting up too. No, it's just that you had this huge event and people are suddenly paying a lot more attention to what all the other volcanoes are up to. Okay. It's kind of like, uh, you know, so somebody hits the news for, um, you know, for for something uh, like, you know, somebody robs a bank while wearing tight jean sh- shorts. Right. And then suddenly everybody's focused on jean shorts. Are more people wearing jean shorts or more crimes being committed with jean shorts? No, it's just right. suddenly our our mind is focused on it. Was that one monk? Right. Yeah. Should we go back and look at this seriously? Yeah. Clearly. Yeah. All right. OK. So I'm seeing. So the pattern isn't necessarily telling the whole truth. When you really peel back the layers, you see that. We just have more access to more data. So even like with hurricanes, right? This is the same thing. Right. Hurricane, you, you see reporting effects in, in hur- with, with hurricanes, other kind of atmospheric, uh, uh, anomalies. You see it in like economic studies. You see it in, in health reports. And it just underlines that no matter what we're looking at and trying to understand, we, we can, we can look at it to the point where we, we don't really have a good understanding of it. We've, we've yeah. analyzed it too much. We've overanalyzed it and we, we were not, we're, we have to take that information that we've gathered, gathered and put it in perspective with pretty much everything else in the universe to, uh, to, to make complete sense of it. Yeah. And I'm even thinking about Slate. Don't they have a feature that's sort of the bogus trend of the week? Oh yeah, I think they do. That they sort of debunk the myth. I think they have one was like rompers. Like everybody's wearing rompers. Now refresh my my memory. What is a romper? Romper is oh, uh, how to explain this? It's a it's a sort of onesie for grownups. Um, and and like for a some prison re- outfit or like big feety pajamas? No, no. I should say that it's like shorts, like a oh, shorts okay. onesie. And, uh, so there were a lot of magazines that were saying that, uh, you know, it's come back and it's the sexiest thing ever and like, men love it. Like cut off overalls? Cut off Yeah, but with sleeves sometimes. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Yeah. See, you're getting the idea. Yeah. It's kind of, it sounds like a sneed, you know? Oh, right. Is this the, uh, the blanket, the, the. No, that's the snu- the. Oh, no, this. The snuggie, the snuggie. Yeah, the snuggie. But then the sneed was the thing that everyone needs that the the Wunstler and the Lorax made. Oh, yeah. okay, yeah. It was some sort of horrible garment that appeared to have no function but became really popular because the Wunstler was telling everybody that they needed it, if I remember correctly. Yes, that's right. So there you go. I mean, you're, you're, there's pattern recognition everywhere, even when patterns don't exist, I think is what we're saying. So whether or not it's an increase in volcanic activity or... Um, the onslaught of the romper onto American women's bodies. Or more trees falling all over the world. Yes. Because we're paying attention to them. That's right. Yeah. Going back to the Lorax, actually. Oh, yes. There are a lot of trees falling that. Yeah. It all comes together. That's right. So I'm thinking about uh, quantum indeterminacy and how this relates back to that. Because, you know, we always have to take on a little quantum in each podcast. Okay. Quantum indeterminacy, and this is the apparent, necessary incompleteness in the description of a physical system that has become one of the characteristics of standard description of quantum physics. Right. And the, the your stuffy <laughs> description. Right. Just stuff. And the important part of that is the apparent necessary incompleteness. Okay. So before this, prior to quantum physics, it was thought that a physical system had a determinate state, which uniquely determined all the values of its measurable properties. And conversely, B, the values of its measurable properties uniquely determine the state. But you throw quantum into the mix and essentially quantum indeterminacy is saying, actually, there's all sorts of outcomes. And in fact, we could be wrong. We could, you know, this is, this is a sort of placeholder and, um, 
what we're trying to determine. Mm-hmm. And it is, we'll just go ahead and say right off the bat that it is incomplete. It is not the end all, the be all. We don't know if a tree is falling in the forest with quantum indeterminacy, but we know the possibility is there. Right. All right. So it's a game of possibilities. Well, it, it, of course, it instantly brings to mind, especially since we mentioned cats earlier, the idea of Schrodinger's cat. Yeah. Uh, which, of course, the idea is that the cat's in a box and you have this sort of elaborate system set up with, uh, uh, with a, you know, decaying radioactive substance and, uh. Yeah, atomic particle, right? Or, yeah. Yeah. It has like an hour and it, uh. It's a 50% chance of decaying, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and uh. percent chance of not decaying. Yeah, and there's a Geiger counter and if it decays and a hammer hits a flask and poison, or it fires a gun, there are very, I think there are variations. Various on. ways to kill the cat. I yeah, think. but, but it basically comes down to the fact that there's a box kind of like your home, and there's a cat in it, and you cannot be sure exactly what state the cat is in. And since you can't be sure, in, in the case of Schrodinger, if the cat is alive or dead, the cat is there in a what is called a superposition, meaning that it is both alive and dead. You, you don't know for sure. It's just a complete uncertainty. Likewise, right now, what's my cat uh, Biscuit doing? Is she laying on a pillow? Is she playing the Xbox? I don't know. I mine, just don't know. Mine has just broken through with the theory of everything. Oh, uh, well, that's because you yeah. get that webcam. I know. Uh, I know. I, I just saw it. I saw it. Wow. It's, but see, the box is open for you because of the webcam. webcam. Right. For me, the box is closed, so anything is possible. Right. So what I think is cool about this concept is that it really is a driving force in science. I think yes. When we think about science, we think about um, then what we know, and uh, we think about this sort of infallible, like, you know, A is A and B is B and C is C and just, that's that's the story, folks. When in fact, science is just a murky, murky field um, with all sorts of spooky things happening. And there's a neuroscientist named David Eagleman who gave a talk at the School of Life about this uncertainty, this this quality in our universe that we've come to understand is the the limits of our knowledge, essentially. Right, and he's uh, he's he has a kind of a rock star per- persona, as I remember. He's pretty, a pretty hip dude. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. He, you know, I mean, he starts out his conversation by saying, "Hey, do you guys know about <laughs> deep field observation?" He asks the audience, and uh, you know, this is in the UK, so of course, like you know, <laughs> half of them know. And uh, he says, "All right, well, cool. Let me let me just blow your mind, you know, right off the bat." And he says, "Okay, there's the Hubble telescope went up, but you know, 2003, and has been orbiting." Um, in a geosynchronous synchronous orbit, and they just decided to point their lens at a little tiny spot in space. And what did they find after millions of seconds of data? They thought maybe they'd find a star or something. Right. They ended up finding 10,000 galaxies, which is thousands of billions of suns, observed in a tiny, tiny patch. Um, and it's, to me, that was the ultimate example of the vastness of what we don't know. Right. Especially he, uh, in this, he mentions that, uh, you know, people are like, well, why don't we just do analyze everything to, to, to that extent? And it, we could, but it would take like millions and millions of years yeah, to do yeah. it. Yeah. Right. So, if you pointed that lens, if you tried to map out the entire space, there's no way we could do it, but we can, that tiny little spot we can gather data right. on. Right. Yeah. Just a tremendous amount of focus on one portion of the, the sky. Yeah. And so he, he, he uses this as a jumping off point to say, you know, everything that we thought was true, we, we kind of have to back up and, and look at. And, and then he goes into this concept of possibilionism, uh, <laughs> which he, uh, he used actually as a, a joke term, 
um, a while back, and it's actually gained some legs. Really? Huh. Yeah, yeah. He it was, sounds like something Jack Donaghy would make up on 30 Rock. That's right. Possibilionism. <laughs> Lemon, it's the new... Reagan, uh, yeah. <laughs> right, new Reaganism like that. Um, but uh, basically what he's saying is it's the act of exploration of new ideas, which is trying to understand the structure of that possibility space. Mm-hmm. So he's saying basically everybody is welcome at the table, but we're going to use science to try to cut away at the parts that don't make sense to us. And we're going to acknowledge the real, the real limits of knowledge that we have. Um, and, and then he kind of talks about all the, the different puzzle parts that we have that we know about right now, but what we don't know about. And, and quantum theory is basically one of those things that he talks about. He says, like, it's given us a tremendous amount of information, but at the same time, we, we still are kind of stuck even in that mode of, well, what's, what's right, the Copenhagen interpretation or the many worlds theory? Right. Right. So, so, you know, time collapse theory, wh- which one of them is right? Are there many, many worlds that we can observe or is there just this one world that we can observe because nothing beyond that exists, which goes back to that tree in the right. forest, you know? Now, you mentioned uh, when we were prepping for this, uh, we went over relativity a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and about how the original uh, theory of relativity is the idea of it. It's, it's, you can sort of compare that to a tree falling in the forest. Right, right, with Einstein and, mm-hmm. and basically saying, okay, this is this is uh, my projection mm-hmm. based on mathematics, but, but this is still just a thought, right? This is right. still a thought experiment in yeah. a sense. And 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 it was something that subsequently we had to pro- we had to prove, right? With things like uh, you know observable time dilation uh, uh, and uh, and also uh, like gravitational lensing with stars, of observing how you know this this interesting relationship between time and space and and its reality as space-time. This presentation is brought to you by Intel, sponsors of tomorrow. So, yeah, basically, when Einstein was looking at this, this was just the seeds for for, uh, what we now can apply to different disciplines, um, to breakthroughs that we've had in science. But still, we have this unknown quantity, and I think about dark matter as an example. Um, you know, we, we definitely underestimated the gravitational pull, mm-hmm. and now we found out that 90%, or we think, of the matter of, uh, of the universe that we don't know what it is or where it's coming from. Yeah, it's kind of like there was a uh, one particular Sherlock Holmes story, and I forget the title of it, but uh, they're investigating a house, and uh, Sherlock was able to determine that uh, there's not enough, uh, based on the invisible space, there's a secret room here somewhere. And uh, and uh, dark matter is kind of a similar situation. Based on how much uh, matter there should be in the universe, there's something missing. So right. therefore, dark matter. Right. And that's a great example or a great analogy because we can't see it. But right. we know that based on our models, that there has to be like 90% right. of yeah, something. There's something there. There's a, there's a hidden room and it's filled with dark matter. And we just have to figure out exactly what that means. Yeah. And, and then if you take it down to even just a... The level of what's available to us now, like, for instance, you've got photography, which high speed photography now, which we can slow down mundane events, um, even like a dog lapping up water. Oh, yes. Or a cat. They're recently studying yeah. on that. Exactly how a cat's drinking. It's, it's completely different than we ever thought. Right. I mean, it, especially with a dog, if you look at it, we used to think that the dog was using its tongue as a sort of cup and bringing all that water up into him. But now we understand that it's actually curling its tongue under 
in getting the the water in that way. So you begin to think to yourself, how many things am I actually missing on a day-to-day basis because I, I'm not quite equipped to perceive things. Yeah, like we slow it down even more and we see that when the the tongue curls, like a tiny dog head comes out of a hole in the tongue and then drinks the, the, the water. That's not true. That's, it might be true. We just don't know yet. We don't know yet. We just can't be certain. I really wish that were true. <laughs> uh, but it does make me think about like another example, which David Eagleman gives, is that We've got photoreceptors at the back of our eyes picking up signals and picking up a tiny slice of electromagnetic radiation spectrum, which is what we call visible light. Right. The same stuff is passing through us um, via cell phones, right? But the difference is that cell phone signals, uh, we can't decode them because we don't have the specialized receptors for it. So, again, it brings us back to that question of maybe we're just ill-equipped to be able to do more at this point in time right. of yeah, our we, evolution. We kind of end up thinking of the visible world, the, the, the world that's visible to humans as being reality. Right. But in, in, but it actually may work out to, uh, to where the version of reality, we're just seeing like a slim slice of reality. Right. And the rest is like we've got blinders like a horse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And David Eagleman had this really great point. He was sort of talking about all the, where we are, uh, historically. In terms of breakthroughs and saying, you know, can you imagine being able to even understand a computer, let alone quantum computing, if you didn't even have electricity to plug in that computer? Yeah, I can't so, even imagine understanding one with electricity. Right. Yeah, it still breaks my brain. But uh, but so we think about where we're going to be on that timeline 100 years from now or a thousand years from now. I and mean, we essentially might look like cavemen. And then all the things that we think right now may just be some sort of guessing game um, that you know, probability, half of it turns out to be correct, the other half not correct. And this is, I think, one of the most important points that David Eagleman makes, which is that science really is a guessing game. Yeah. Um, it doesn't look, science does not move in a linear fashion. Uh, it takes great creative leaps, and then it tries to backfill to substantiate those leaps. Yeah. So that's another reason why science uh, scientists are rock stars and well, it's, it's, it goes back to, uh, to taking into cosmology the idea of uh, um, geocentrism and heliocentrism, like the idea that, okay, the Earth's the center of the universe. Let's throw some uh, math at that. Okay, that didn't work out. Sun's the center of the universe. Well, that didn't work out either. You know, it's yeah. like they, you know, they, they take this leap, uh, and sometimes the leap is based on things that aren't science, but then by uh, through scientific uh, evaluation, they are able to uh, determine whether that was a leap that's going to land us onto solid ground or not. All right. Yeah, so I'm liking this because, you know, there's this concept of scientists as staid, pipe-smoking, plaid vest-wearing <laughs> men and women because, uh, you know, but with mustaches, I'll just go that far, <laughs> um, is, is completely wrong. I mean, they're they're sort of like the graffiti artists, you know, yeah. trying to put things together. I don't know, a graffiti artist sounded kind of cool. But <laughs> as you said, they're, they're just throwing things, they're throwing darts at the, at the dart board of ideas and yeah. just trying to get there. And one day they'll look back and they'll say, I can't believe that they, they thought that dark matter was a thing and they didn't know that dog tongues had a little bitty dog head that came out of right, it. Right, exactly. <laughs> totally didn't understand even their own pets. <laughs> and jean shorts, what was that all about? <laughs> Indeed. But examples, I think, of this, of this creative leap is with relativity. Right. As you had brought up before with Einstein. That was just a little seed of idea before, but then it actually had some real-time applications. Yeah, and we were later able to to observe um, uh, gravitational lensing, to to see how light traveling near a a very large star uh, actually 
uh, warps around it. Uh, being able to observe, uh, how, uh, the, 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 the clocks in a, uh, an orbiting satellite. Yeah. Um, how, uh, time passes a little differently in orbit than it does on Earth. Right. And so that's, that's the geosynchronous satellites, right? Right. And so that's what, that's how we keep time aboard spacecraft. Yeah. By being aware of the, uh, the, the change. Right. Okay. Yeah. And then we've got atomic energy and atomic warfare. I mean, these are huge things that were just predicated on a thought. Of course, a lot of math too, but, uh, but turned out to be on the 50% right part of the, the board there. Yeah. It's kind of like we're pawing our way blindly through a, a fog, and the fog is the universe. You know, we, we can never really see the whole picture, but we can sort of, uh, you know, reach ahead and sort of feel our way through it and uh, and figure out what's going to be solid ground and what's going to be, uh, you know, a, a plummet into an abyss. We can't see the trees for the forest. Oh, there you go. All right. Well, that helps explain a little bit, but I think that the coolest thing is that it helps us to understand that uncertainty is okay. Right. And yeah, uncertainty is a huge part of it. Right. It's the building block of our knowledge. Right. Yeah. The second you have everything figured out, that's uh, that's where the problem is. You're in big trouble. In fact, Voltaire said doubt is an uncomfortable position, but certainty is an absurd position. I always come back to uh, the book of Job where uh, uh, Job's having a miserable time. I've probably mentioned this before. But, uh, but then, uh, you know, God is basically, when he decides to, you know, mouth off to God, God's like, uh, you know, who are you to ask questions? You're never going to understand anything. And, uh, it's a very, it's, it's, it's probably my favorite, uh, chapter in the Bible because it's got, uh, a book of the Bible, uh, because it, it comes down to uncertainty, cosmic uncertainty. Yeah. yeah. Theologic uncertainty, everything, philosophical. I, I like that chapter too. And the one on Gene Shorts. Yeah, the one on Gene Shorts is pretty good, but yeah. it's a cautionary tale. Well, of course, <laughs> you won't see any on me. <laughs> so if you want to learn more about these topics, just uh, visit the homepage and you can drop in quantum physics, uh, relativity, gene shorts, whatever, into the search bar. And we have a plethora of articles uh, for you to look over. And don't forget to check out David Eagleman's talk on uncertainty, which is on schooloflife.com. And in the meantime, you can check us out on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, you can find us, uh, just do a search on uh, Facebook for Stuff to Blow Your Mind or just put in Blow the Mind. That's our Facebook and Twitter handle. And please drop us a line at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. <laughs>